In the interest of proving that I am taking Canadian Short Fiction Month with the absolute sobering seriousness it deserves, I thought I'd read one of the more absolute sobering serious and sad pieces of Canadian short fiction that I know about. Not wholly unrelated to tonight's story, I should disclose that in less sobering times, I've been involved in the most heated discussions regarding the pronunciation of tonight's author's last name. It's a trifling obsession, but I'm good with those. As a result, I deliberately pronounce it in a way that those of you in Canada might not consider correct. Arguably. Obdurately. It's a long story, but not as long as the one I'm about to read. Good evening. It's Sunday, the 15th of February, 2009, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. The Boat, by Alistair McLeod. There are times, even now, when I wake up at four o'clock in the morning with the terrible fear that I have overslept, when I imagine that my father is waiting for me in the room below the darkened stairs. All that the shore-bound men are tossing pebbles against my window while blowing their hands and stomping their feet impatiently on the frozen steadfast earth. There are times when I am half out of bed and fumbling for socks and mumbling for words before I realise that I am foolishly alone, that no one waits at the base of the stairs and no boat rides restlessly in the waters by the pier. At such times, only the grey corpses on the overflowing ashtray beside my bed bear witness to the extinction of the latest spark, and silently await the crushing out of the most recent of their fellows. And then, because I am afraid to be alone with death, I dress rapidly, make a great to-do about clearing my throat, turn on both faucets in the sink and proceed to make loud, splashing, ineffectual noises. Later, I go out and walk the mile to the all-night restaurant. In the winter, it is a very cold walk, and there are often tears in my eyes when I arrive. The waitress usually gives a sympathetic little shiver and says, Boy, it must be really cold out there. You got tears in your eyes. Yes, I say. It sure is. It really is. And then the three or four of us who are always in such places at such times make uninteresting little protective chit-chat until the dawn reluctantly arrives. Then I swallow the coffee, which is always bitter, and leave with a great busy rush, because by that time I have to worry about being late, and whether I have a clean shirt, and whether my car will start, and about all the other countless things one must worry about when he teaches at a great Midwestern university. And I know then that that day will go by as have all the days of the past ten years. For the call and the voices and the shapes and the boat were not really there in the early morning's darkness. 
and I have all kinds of comforting reality to prove it. They are only shadows and echoes, the animals a child's hand makes on the wall by lamplight, and the voices from the rain barrel, the cuttings from an old movie made in the black and white of long ago. I first became conscious of the boat in the same way and at almost the same time that I became aware of the people it supported. My earliest recollection of my father is a view from the floor of gigantic rubber boots and then of being suddenly elevated and having my face pressed against the stubble of his cheek and of how it tasted of salt and of how he smelled of salt from his red-soled rubber boots to the shaggy whiteness of his hair. When I was very small, he took me for my first ride in the boat. I rode the half-mile from our house to the wharf on his shoulders, and I remember the sound of his rubber boots galumphing along the gravel beach, the tune of the indecent little song he used to sing, and the odour of the salt. The floor of the boat was permeated with the same odour, and in its constancy I was not aware of change. In the harbour we made our little circle and returned. He tied the boat by its painter, fastened the stem to its permanent anchor, and lifted me high over his head to the solidity of the wharf. Then he climbed up the little iron ladder that led to the wharf's cap, placed me once more upon his shoulders and galumphed off again. When we returned to the house, everyone made a great fuss over my precocious excursion and asked, How did you like the boat? Were you afraid in the boat? Did you cry in the boat? They repeated the boat at the end of all their questions, and I knew it must be very important to everyone. My earliest recollection of my mother is of being alone with her in the mornings while my father was away in the boat. She seemed to be always repairing the clothes that were torn in the boat, preparing food to be eaten in the boat, or looking for the boat through our kitchen window which faced upon the sea. When my father returned about noon, she would ask, Well, how did things go in the boat today? It was the first question I remember asking. Well, how did things go in the boat today? Well, how did things go in the boat today? The boat in our lives was registered at Port Hawkesbury. She was what Nova Scotians call a Cape Island boat and was designed for the small inshore fishermen who sought the lobsters of the spring and the mackerel of summer and later the cod and haddock and hake. She was 32 feet long and nine wide and she was powered by an engine from a Chevrolet truck. She had a marine clutch and a high-speed reverse gear and was painted light green with the name Jenny Lynn, stenciled in black letters on her bow and painted on an oblong plate across her stern. 
Jenny Lynn had been my mother's maiden name, and the book was called after her as another link in the chain of tradition. Most of the boats that berthed at the wharf bore the names of some female member of their owner's household. I say this now as if I knew it all then. All at once, all about boat dimensions and engines, and as if on one day of my first childish voyage I noticed the difference between a stenciled name and a painted one. But of course it was not that way at all, for I learned it all very slowly, and there was not enough time. I learned first about our house, which was one of about fifty, which marched around the horseshoe of our harbour and the wharf, which was its heart. Some of them were so close to the water that during a storm the sea spray splashed against their windows while others were built farther along the beach, as was the case with ours. The houses and their people, like those of the neighbouring towns and villages, were the result of Ireland's discontent and Scotland's Highland clearances and America's war of independence. Impulsive, emotional, Catholic Celts, who could not bear to live with England, and shrewd, determined, Protestant Puritans, who, in the years after 1776, could not bear to live without. The most important room in our house was one of those oblong, old-fashioned kitchens heated by a wood and coal-burning stove. Behind the stove was a box of kindlings, and beside it, a coal scuttle. A heavy wooden table, with leaves that expanded or reduced its dimensions, stood in the middle of the floor. There were five wooden, homemade chairs, which had been chipped and hacked by a variety of knives. Against the east wall, opposite the stove, there was a couch which sagged in the middle and had a cushion for a pillow, and above it a shelf which contained matches, tobacco, pencils, odd fish hooks, bits of twine, and a tin can filled with bills and receipts. The south wall was dominated by a window which faced the sea, and on the north there was a five-foot board which bore a variety of clothes hooks and the burdens of each. Beneath the board there was a jumble of odd footwear, mostly of rubber. There was also on this wall a barometer, a map of the marine area and a shelf which held a tiny radio. The kitchen was shared by all of us and was a buffer zone between the immaculate order of ten other rooms and the disruptive chaos of the single room that was my father's. My mother ran her house as her brothers ran their boats. Everything was clean and spotless and in order. She was tall and dark and powerfully energetic. In later years, she reminded me of the women of Thomas Hardy, particularly Eustacea Vye, in a physical way. She fed and clothed a family of seven children, making all of the meals and most of the clothes. 
She grew miraculous gardens and magnificent flowers and raised broods of hens and ducks. She would walk miles on berry-picking expeditions and hoist her skirts to dig for clams when the tide was low. She was fourteen years younger than my father, whom she had married when she was twenty-six and had been a local beauty for a period of ten years. My mother was of the sea, as were all of her people, and her horizons were the very literal ones she scanned with her dark and fearless eyes. Between the kitchen clothes rack and barometer, a door opened into my father's bedroom. It was a room of disorder and disarray. It was as if the wind which so often clamoured about the house succeeded in entering the single room and after whipping it into turmoil stole quietly away to renew its knowing laughter from without. My father's bed was against the south wall. It always looked rumpled and unmade because he lay on top of it more than he slept within any folds it might have had. Beside it there was a little brown table, an archaic goose-necked reading light, a battered table radio, a mound of wooden matches, one or two packages of tobacco, a deck of cigarette papers, and an overflowing ashtray cluttered its surface. The brown larvae of tobacco shreds and the grey flecks of ash covered both the table and the floor beneath it. The once varnished surface of the table was disfigured by numerous black scars and gashes inflicted by the neglected burning cigarettes of many years. They had tumbled from the ashtray unnoticed and branded their statements permanently and quietly into the wood until the odour of their burning caused the snuffing out of their lives. At the bed's foot there was a single window which looked upon the sea. Against the adjacent wall there was a battered bureau and beside it there was a closet which held his single ill-fitting serge suit the two or three white shirts that strangled him and the square black shoes that pinched. When he took off his more friendly clothes, the heavy woolen sweaters, mitts and socks which my mother knitted for him and the woolen and doeskin shirts, he dumped them unceremoniously on a single chair. If a visitor entered the room while he was lying on the bed, he would be told to throw the clothes on the floor and take their place upon the chair. Magazines and books covered the bureau and competed with the clothes for domination of the chair. They further overburdened the heroic little table and lay on top of the radio. They filled a baffling and unknowable cave beneath the bed, and in the corner by the bureau they spilled from the walls and grew up from the floor. The magazines were the most conventional. Time, Newsweek, Life, McLean's Family Herald, Reader's Digest. 
they were the result of various cut-rate subscriptions or of the gift subscriptions associated with Christmas. The two whole years for only $3.50. The books were more varied. There were a few hardcover magnificent and bygone Book of the Month wonders and some were Christmas or birthday gifts. The majority of them, however, were used paperbacks which came from those second-hand bookstores which advertise in the back of magazines. Miscellaneous used paperbacks, ten cents each. At first he sent for them himself, although my mother resented the expense, but in later years they came more and more often from my sisters who had moved to the cities. Especially at first, they were very weird and varied. Mickey Spillane and Ernest Haycox vied with Dostoevsky and Faulkner. And the Penguin Poets edition of Gerald Manley Hopkins arrived in the same box as a little book on sex technique called Getting the Most Out of Love. The former had been assiduously annotated by a very fine hand using a very blue inked fountain pen, while the latter had been studied by someone with very large thumbs, the prints of which were still visible in the margins. At the slightest provocation it would open almost automatically to particularly graphic and well-smudged pages. When he was not in the boat, my father spent most of his time lying on the bed in his socks, the top two buttons of his trousers undone, his discarded shirt on the ever-ready chair, and the sleeves of the woolen Stanfield underwear, which he wore both summer and winter, drawn halfway up to his elbows. The pillows propped up the whiteness of his head, and the goose-necked lamp illuminated the pages in his hands. The cigarettes smoked and smouldered on the ashtray and on the table, and the radio played constantly, sometimes low and sometimes loud. At midnight, and at one, two, three, and four, one could sometimes hear the radio, his occasional cough, the rustling thud of a completed book being tossed to the corner heap or the movement necessitated by his sitting on the edge of the bed to roll the thousandth cigarette. He seemed never to sleep, only to doze, and the light shone constantly from his window to the sea. My mother despised the room and all it stood for, and she had stopped sleeping in it after I was born. She despised disorder in rooms and in houses and in hours and in lives, and she had not read a book since high school. There she had read Ivanhoe and considered it a colossal waste of time. Still, the room remained like a solid rock of opposition in the sparkling waters of a clear deep harbour, opening off the kitchen where we really lived our lives, with its door always open and its contents visible to all. The daughters of the room and of the house were very beautiful. They were tall and willowy like my mother, and had her fine facial features set off by the reddish copper-coloured hair that had apparently once been my father's before it turned to white. All of them were very clever in school, 
and helped my mother a great deal about the house. When they were young, they sang and were very happy and very nice to me because I was the youngest and the family's only boy. My father never approved of their playing about the wharf like the other children, and they went there only when my mother sent them on an errand. At such times, they almost always overstayed playing screaming games of tag or hide-and-seek in and about the fishing shanties, the piled traps and tubs of trawl shouting down to the perch that swam languidly about the wharf's algae-covered piles or jumping in and out of boats that tugged gently at their lines. My mother was never uneasy about them at such times, and when her husband criticised her, she would say, Nothing will happen to them there, or they could be doing worse things in worse places. By about the ninth or tenth grade, my sisters, one by one, discovered my father's bedroom, and then the change would begin. Each would go into the room one morning, when he was out. She would go with the ideal hope of imposing order, or with the more practical objective of emptying the ashtray and later she would be found spellbound by the volume in her hand. My mother's reaction was always abrupt, bordering on the angry. Take your nose out of that trash and come and do your work, she would say. And once I saw her slap my younger sister so hard that the print of her hand was scarletly emblazoned upon her daughter's cheek, while the broken spined paperback fluttered uselessly to the floor. Thereafter, my mother would launch a campaign against what she had discovered, but could not understand. At times, although she was not overly religious, she would bring in God to bolster her arguments, saying, In the next world, God will see to those who waste their lives reading useless books when they should be about their work. Or, without theological aid, I would like to know how books help anyone to live a life. If my father were in, she would repeat the remarks louder than necessary, and her voice would carry into his room where he lay upon his bed. His usual reaction was to turn up the volume of the radio, although that action in itself betrayed the success of the initial thrust. Shortly after my sisters began to read the books, They grew restless and lost interest in darning socks and baking bread, and all of them eventually went to work as summer waitresses in the seafood restaurant. The restaurant was run by a big American concern from Boston and catered to the tourists that flooded the area during July and August. My mother despised the whole operation. She said the restaurant was not run by our people, and our people did not eat there and that it was run by outsiders, for outsiders. Who are these people anyway, she would ask, tossing back her dark hair. And what do they, though they go about with their cameras for a hundred years, know about the way it is here? And what do they care about me and mine, and why should I care about them? 
She was angry that my sisters should even conceive of working in such a place, and more angry when my father made no move to prevent it. And she worried about herself, and about her family, and about her life. Sometimes she would say softly to her sisters, I don't know what's the matter with my girls. It seems none of them are interested in any of the right things. And sometimes there would be bitter, savage arguments. One afternoon I was coming in with three mackerel I had been given at the wharf when I heard her say, Well, I hope you'll be satisfied when they come home knocked up and you'll have had your way. It was the most savage thing I had ever heard my mother say. Not just the words, but the way she said them. And I stood there in the porch, afraid to breathe for what seemed like the years from ten to fifteen, feeling the damp, moist mackerel with their silver, glassy eyes growing clammy against my leg. Through the angle in the screen door I saw my father, who had been walking into his room, wheel around on one of his rubber-booted heels and look at her with his blue eyes flashing like clearest ice beneath the snow that was his hair. His usually ruddy face was drawn and grey, reflecting the exhaustion of a man of sixty-five who had been working in those rubber boots for eleven hours on an August day, and for a fleeting moment I wondered what I would do if he killed my mother while I stood there in the porch with those three foolish mackerel in my hand. Then he turned and went into his room and the radio blared forth the next day's weather forecast, and I retreated under the noise and returned again, stamping my feet and slamming the door too loudly to signal my approach. My mother was busy at the stove when I came in, and did not raise her head when I threw the mackerel in a pan. As I looked into my father's room, I said, "'Well, how did things go in the boat today?' And he replied, oh, Not too badly, all things considered. He was lying on his back and lighting the first cigarette and the radio was talking about the Virginia coast. All of my sisters made good money on tips. They bought my father an electric razor which he tried to use for a while and they took out even more magazine subscriptions. They bought my mother a great many clothes of the type she was very fond of, the wide-brimmed hats and the brocaded dresses, but she locked them all in trunks and refused to wear any of them. On one August day, my sisters prevailed upon my father to take some of their restaurant customers for an afternoon ride in the boat. The tourists, with their expensive clothes and cameras and sunglasses, awkwardly backed down the iron ladder of the wharf's side to where my father waited below, holding the rocking Jenny Lynn in snug against the wharf with one hand on the iron ladder and steadying his descending passengers with the other. They tried to look both prim and windblown, like the girls in the Pepsi-Cola ads, and did the Best they could, sitting on the thwarts, 
where the newspapers were spread to cover the splattered blood and fish entrails, crowding to one side so that they were in danger of capsizing the boat, taking the inevitable pictures, or merely trailing their fingers through the water of their dreams. All of them liked my father very much, and after he'd brought them back from their circles in the harbour, they invited him to their rented cabins, which were located high on a hill overlooking the village to which they were so alien. He proceeded to get very drunk up there with the beautiful view and the strange company and the abundant liquor, and in the late afternoon he began to sing. I was just approaching the wharf to deliver my mother's summons when he began, and the familiar yet unfamiliar voice that rolled down from the cabins made me feel as I had never felt before in my young life, or perhaps I had always felt without knowing it, and I was ashamed, yet proud, young, yet old, and saved, yet forever lost and there was nothing I could do to control my legs which trembled, nor my eyes which wept for what they could not tell. The tourists were equipped with tape recorders, and my father sang for more than three hours. His voice boomed down the hill and bounced off the surface of the harbour, which was an unearthly blue on that hot August day and was then reflected to the wharf and fishing shanties where it was absorbed amidst the men who were baiting their lines for the next day's haul. He sang all the old sea shanties which had come across from the old world, and by which men like him had pulled ropes for generations and he sang the East Coast sea songs which celebrated the sealing vessels of Northumberland Strait, and the long liners of the Grand Banks, and of Anticosti, Sable Island, Grand Manon, Boston Harbour, Nantucket, and Block Island. Gradually he shifted to the seemingly unending Gaelic drinking songs with their twenty or more verses and inevitable refrains, and the men in the shanties smiled at their coarseness of some of the verses, and the very thought that the singer's immediate audience did not know what they were applauding nor recording to take back to staid old Boston. Later, as the sun was setting, he switched to the laments and the wild and haunting Gaelic war songs of those spattered highland ancestors he had never seen, and when his voice ceased... The savage melancholy of three hundred years seemed to hang over the peaceful harbour and the quiet boats, and the men leaning in the doorways of their shanties with their cigarettes glowing in the dusk, and the women looking to the sea from their open windows with their children in their arms. When he came home, he threw the money he had earned on the kitchen table, as he always did with all his earnings, but my mother refused to touch it and the next day he went with the rest of the men to bait his troll in the shanties. The tourists came to the door that evening, and my mother met them there, and told them that her husband was not in, although he was lying on the bed only a few feet away with the radio playing and the cigarette upon his lips. She stood in the doorway until they reluctantly went away. 
In the winter they sent him a picture, which had been taken on the day of the singing. On the back it said, To our Ernest Hemingway, and the hour was underlined. There was also an accompanying letter, telling how much they had enjoyed themselves, how popular the tape was proving, and explaining who Ernest Hemingway was. In a way, it almost did look like one of those unshaven, taken-in-Cuba pictures of Hemingway. He looked both massive and incongruous in the setting. His bulky fisherman's clothes were too big for the green and white lawn chair in which he sat, and his rubber boots seemed to take up all of the well-clipped grass square. The beach umbrella jarred with his sunburned face, and because he had already been singing for some time, his lips, which chapped in the winds of spring and burned in the water glare of summer, had already cracked in several places, producing tiny flecks of blood at their corners and on the whiteness of his teeth. The bracelets of brass chain, which he wore to protect his wrists from chafing, seemed abnormally large, and his broad leather belt had been slackened and his heavy shirt and underwear were open at the throat revealing an uncultivated wildness of white chest hair bordering on the semi-controlled stubble of his neck and chin. His blue eyes had looked directly into the camera and his hair was whiter than the two tiny clouds which hung over his left shoulder. The sea was behind him and its immense blue flatness stretched out to touch the arching blueness of the sky. It seemed very far away from him, or else he was so much in the foreground that he seemed too big for it. Each year another of my sisters would read the books and work in the restaurant. Sometimes they would stay out quite late in the hot summer nights, and when they came upon the stairs, my mother would ask them many long and involved questions which they resented and tried to avoid. Before ascending the stairs, they would go into my father's room, and those of us who waited above could hear them throwing his clothes off the chair before sinking on it, or the squeak of the bed as they sat on the edge. Sometimes they would talk to him a long time, the murmur of their voices blending with the murmur of the radio in a mysterious vapour-like sound which floated softly up the stairs. I say this again as if it all happened at once, and as if all my sisters were of identical ages, and like so many lemmings going into another sea, and again, it was of course not that way at all, yet go they did to Boston, to Montreal, to New York, with the young men they met during the summers and later married in those faraway cities. The young men were very articulate and handsome and wore fine clothes and drove expensive cars, and my sisters, as I said, were very tall and beautiful with their copper-coloured hair and were tired of darning socks and baking bread. One by one they went, my mother had each of her daughters for fifteen years, then lost them for two, and finally forever. None married a fisherman. My mother never accepted any of the young men, for in her eyes they seemed always a combination of the lazy, the effeminate, the dishonest and the unknown. They never seemed to do any physical work, 
and she could not comprehend their luxurious vacations, and she did not know whence they came, nor who they were. And in the end, she did not really care, for they were not of her people, and they were not of her sea. I say this now with a sense of wonder at my own stupidity and thinking I was somehow free and would go on doing well in school and playing and helping in the boat and passing into my early teens while streaks of grey began to appear in my mother's dark hair and my father's rubber boots dragged sometimes in the pebbles of the beach as he trudged home from the wharf. And there were but three of us in the house that at one time had been so loud then, during the winter that I was fifteen, he seemed to grow old and ill at once. Most of January, he lay there upon the bed, smoking and reading and listening to the radio while the wind howled about the house, and the needle-like snow blistered off the ice-covered harbour, and the doors flew out of people's hands if they did not cling to them like death. In February... When the men began overhauling their lobster traps, he still did not move, and my mother and I began to knit lobster trap headings in the evenings. The twine was always very sharp and harsh, and blisters formed upon our thumbs, and little paths of blood snaked quietly down between our fingers, while the seals that had drifted down from distant Labrador wept and moaned like human children on the ice flows of the gulf. In the daytime, my mother's brother, who had been my father's partner as long as I could remember, also came to work upon the gear. He was a year older than my mother, and was tall and dark, and the father of twelve children. By March we were very far behind, and although I began to work very hard in the evenings, I knew it was not hard enough, and that there were but eight weeks left before the opening of the season on May 1st. And I knew that my mother worried, and my uncle was uneasy, and that all of our lives depended on the boat being ready with her gear and two men. By the date of May the 1st, and I knew then that David Copperfield and the Tempest and all those friends I had dearly come to love must really go forever. So I bade them all goodbye. The night after my first full day at home and after my mother had gone upstairs, he called me into his room where I sat upon the chair beside his bed. You will go back tomorrow he said simply. I refused then, saying that I had made my decision and was satisfied. That is no way to make a decision, he said, and if you are satisfied, I am not. It is best that you go back. I was almost angry then, and told him, as all children do, that I wished he would leave me alone and stop telling me what to do. He looked at me a long time then, lying there on the same bed on which he had fathered me those sixteen years before, fathered me, his only son, 
out of who knew what emotions when he was already fifty-six and his hair had turned to snow. Then he swung his legs over the edge of the squeaking bed and sat facing me and looking into my own dark eyes with his of crystal blue and placed his hand upon my knee. I am not telling you to do anything, he said softly, only asking you. The next morning I returned to school. As I left, my mother followed me to the porch and said, I never thought a son of mine would choose useless books over the parents that gave him life. In the weeks that followed, he got up rather miraculously and the gear was ready and the Jenny Lynn was freshly painted by the last two weeks of April when the ice began to break up and the lonely screaming gulls returned to haunt the silver herring as they flashed within the sea. On the first day of May, the boats raced out as they had always done, laden down almost to the gunwales with their heavy cargoes of traps. They were almost like living things as they plunged through the waters of the spring and manoeuvred between the still-floating icebergs of crystal white and emerald green on their way to the traditional grounds that they sought out every May. And those of us who sat that day in the high school on the hill, discussing the watery imagery of Tennyson, watched them as they passed back and forth beneath us, until by afternoon the piles of traps which had been stacked upon the wharf were no longer visible but were spread about the bottom of the sea. And the Jenny Lynn went too, all day, with my uncle tall and dark like a latter-day Tashtego, standing at the tiller with his legs wide apart and guiding her deftly between the floating pans of ice and my father in the stern standing in the same way with his hands upon the ropes that lashed the cargo to the deck. And at night my mother asked, well, how did things go in the boat today? And the spring wore on and the summer came and school ended in the third week of June and the lobster season on July 1st and I wished that the two things I loved so dearly did not exclude each other in a manner that was so blunt and clear. At the conclusion of the lobster season, my uncle said he had been offered a berth on a deep-sea dragger and had decided to accept. We all knew he was leaving the Jenny Lynn forever, and that before the next lobster season he would buy a boat of his own. He was expecting another child, and would be supporting fifteen people by the next spring, and could not chance my father against the family that he loved. I joined my father then for the trawling season, and he made no protest, and my mother was quite happy. Through the summer we baited the tubs of trawl in the afternoon, and set them at sunset, and revisited them in the darkness of early morning. The men would come trampling by our house at 4 a.m., and we would join them and walk with them to the wharf, and be on our way before the sun rose out of the ocean where it seemed to spend the night. 
If I was not up, they would toss pebbles to my window, and I would be very embarrassed and tumble downstairs to where my father lay fully clothed atop his bed, reading his books and listening to his radio and smoking his cigarette. When I appeared, he would swing off his bed and put on his boots, and be instantly ready, and then we would take the lunches my mother had prepared the night before, and walk off toward the sea. He would make no attempt to wake me himself. It was, in many ways, a good summer. There were few storms, and we were out of almost every day, and we lost a minimum of gear, and seemed to land a maximum of fish, and I turned dark and brown after the manner of my uncles. My father did not tan. He never tanned, because of his reddish complexion, and the salt water irrigated his skin as it had for sixty years. He burned and reburned over and over again, and his lips still cracked so that they bled when he smiled, and his arms, especially the left, still broke out into the oozing salt water boils, as they had ever since as a child I had first watched him soaking and bathing them in a variety of ineffectual solutions. The chafe-preventing bracelets of brass-linked chain that all the men wore about their wrists in the early spring were his the full season, and he shaved, but painfully, and only once a week. And I saw then, that summer, many things that I had seen all my life as if for the first time, and I thought that perhaps my father had never been intended for a fisherman, physically or mentally. At least, not in the manner of my uncle's. He had never really loved it. And I remembered that. One evening in his room, when we were talking about David Copperfield, he had said that he had always wanted to go to the university. And I had dismissed it then, in the way one dismisses his father's saying that he would like to be a tightrope walker, and we had gone on to talk about the Peggotties and how they loved the sea. And I thought then to myself that there were many things wrong with all of us and all our lives, and I wondered why my father, who was himself an only son, had not married before he was forty, and then I wondered why he had. I even thought that perhaps he had to marry my mother and checked the dates of the flyleaf of the Bible where I learned that my older sister had been born a prosaic eleven months after the marriage. And I felt myself then very dirty and debased for my lack of faith and for what I had thought and done. And then there came into my heart a very great love for my father and I thought it was very much braver to spend a life doing what you really do not want, rather than selfishly following forever your own dreams and inclinations. And I knew then that I could never leave him alone to suffer the iron-tipped harpoons which my mother would forever hurl into his soul, because he was a failure, as a husband and father who had retained none of his own, and I felt that I had been very small in a little secret place within me, and that 
even the completion of high school was for me a silly, shallow, selfish dream. So I told him one night very resolutely and very powerfully that I would remain with him as long as he lived and we would fish the sea together. And he made no protest but only smiled through the cigarette smoke that wreathed his bed and replied, I hope you will remember what you have said. The room was now so filled with books as to be almost Dickensian, but he would not allow my mother to move or change them and continued to read them, sometimes two or three a night. They came with great regularity now, and there were more hardcovers sent by my sisters who had gone so long ago and now seemed so distant and so prosperous, and sent also pictures of small red-haired grandchildren with baseball bats and dolls which he placed upon his bureau and which my mother gazed at wistfully when she thought no one would see. Red-haired grandchildren with baseball bats and dolls who would never know the sea in hatred or in love. And so we fished through the heat of August and into the cooler days of September when the water was so clear we could almost see the bottom and the white mists rose like delicate ghosts in the early morning dawn. And one day my mother said to me, You have given added years to his life. And we fished on into October when it began to roughen and we could no longer risk night sets but took our gear out each morning and returned at the first sign of the squalls. And on into November, when we lost three togs of trawl and the clear blue water turned to sullen grey and the trochoidal waves rolled rough and the high and washed across our bows and deck as we ran within their troughs. We wore heavy sweaters now and the awkward rubber slickers and the heavy woolen mitts which soaked and froze into masses of ice that hung from our wrists like the limbs of gigantic monsters until we thawed them against the exhaust pipe's heat. And almost every day we would leave for home before noon, driven by the blasts of the northwest wind coating our eyebrows with ice and freezing our eyelids closed as we leaned into a visibility that was hardly there, charting our course from the compass and the sea, running with the waves and between them but never confronting their towering might. And I stood at the tiller now, on these homeward lunges, stood in the place and in the manner of my uncle, turning to look at my father and to shout over the roar of the engine and slop of the sea to where he stood in the stern, drenched and dripping with the snow and the salt and the spray of his bushy eyebrows caked in ice. But on November 21st, when it seemed we might be making the final run of the season, I turned and he was not there, and I knew even in that instant that he would never be again. On November 21st, the waves of the grey Atlantic are very high and the waters are very cold 
and there are no signposts on the surface of the sea. You cannot tell where you have been five minutes before, and in the squalls of snow you cannot see. And it takes longer than you would believe to check a boat that has been running before a gale and turn her ever so carefully in a wide and stupid circle, with timbers creaking and straining back into the face of storm. And you know that it is useless, and that your voice does not carry the length of the boat, and that even if you knew the original spot, the relentless waves would carry such a burden perhaps a mile or so by the time you could return. And you also know the final irony that your father, like your uncles and all the men that form your past, cannot swim a stroke. The lobster beds off the Cape Breton coast are still very rich, and now from May to July their offerings are packed in crates of ice and thundered by the gigantic transport trucks, day and night, through New Glasgow, Amherst, St. John, and Bangor, and Portland, and into Boston, where they are tossed still living into boiling pots of water, their final home. And though the prices are higher and the competition tighter, the grounds to which the Jenny Lynn once went remained untouched and unfinished as they have for the last ten years. For if there are no signposts on the sea in storm, there are certain ones in calm, and the lobster bottoms were distributed in calm before any of us can remember, and the grounds my father fished were those his father fished before him. And there were others before and before. Twice the big boats have come from forty and fifty miles, lured by the promise of the grounds, and strewn the bottoms with their traps, and twice they have returned to find their buoys cut adrift, and their gear lost and destroyed. Twice the fisheries officer and the mounted police have come and asked many long and involved questions, and twice... They have received no answers from the men leaning in the doors of their shanties, and the women standing at their windows with their children in their arms. Twice they have gone away saying, There are no legal boundaries in the marine area. No one can own the sea. But these grounds don't wait for anyone. But the men and the women with my mother's dark among them, do not care for what they say, for to them the grounds are sacred, and they think they wait for me. It is not an easy thing to know that your mother lives alone on an inadequate insurance policy, and that she is too proud to accept any other aid, and that she looks through her lonely window onto the ice of winter, and the hot flat calm of summer, and the rolling waves of fall. And she lies awake in the early morning's darkness when the rubber boots of the men scrunch upon the gravel as they pass beside her house on their way down to the wharf. And she knows that the footsteps never stop because no man goes from her house and she alone of all the Lynns has neither son nor son-in-law that walks toward the boat that will take him to the sea. 
and it is not an easy thing to know that your mother looks upon the sea with love, and on you with bitterness, because the one has been so constant, and the other so untrue. But neither is it easy to know that your father was found on November 28th, ten miles to the north, and wedged between two boulders at the base of the rock-strewn cliffs where he had been hurled and slammed so many, many times. His hands were shredded ribbons, as were his feet, which had lost their boots to the suction of the sea, and his shoulders came apart in our hands when we tried to move him from the rocks. And the fish had eaten his testicles, and the gulls had pecked out his eyes, and the white-green stubble of his whiskers had continued to grow in death like the grass on graves upon the purple bloated mass that was his face. There was not much left of my father, physically, as he lay there with the brass chains on his wrists and the seaweed in his hair. 